0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Speaking of standing up for our people in Canada,
1: you will have a government under my leadership that works for Canadians, and I will ban all my ministers from any involvement in the world i
2: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadic. That's Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. The clip you just heard was from a rally during his successful bid for party leadership. The Conservative base in this country has become fixated on this globalist cabal they call the WEF, as in the WEF. Actually conservatives across the English-speaking world have made the WEF their new bugbear. Influencers like Mark Moss claim that the WEF's stated goals are to have us own nothing and be happy. By 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. So the question is, how can over 10 years, they get us from having private property to owning nothing, right? I mean, surely people aren't gonna really give everything up peacefully, right? It's not gonna happen. So it has to be taken away. There is actually a grain of truth to this, but it's only the slightest grain. The phrase, own nothing and be happy, comes from an essay published in Forbes by Ida Auken. The WEF then excerpted this essay in some promotional videos where they were touting some of their big ideas. At the time, Auken was a young global leader with the WEF, and she published this as a speculative essay. It's basically an argument for a kind of circular, technologically-enabled sharing economy. Some of this looks kind of attractive to me, some of it not at all. But that's really beside the point, because this essay is not the stated policy goal of the WEF. It is pretty absurd to imagine that multinational corporate leaders want to end private property. Yet the right has embraced this as one of their main talking points, and they say that the WEF is using COVID-19 to usher in this dystopian vision.
3: Millions of, Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. And in the shadows, an organization or a cabal, really, schemed to use this sudden global instability and public hysteria to rewrite society.
4: We have an incredible opportunity to create entirely new sustainable industries, investing in nature as the true engine of our economy.
2: This is the Great Reset. It It rose to prominence when then Prince Charles touted it on the royal family's YouTube page. A chance to reset and accelerate efforts to improve the state of our world. Historian Quinn Slobodian charts the trajectory of the Great Reset in a Guardian article from a few years ago. It goes from a WEF idea, to the Royals' YouTube page, to Glenn Beck and the broader right-wing echo chamber. Fox News host Laura Ingram likens the Great Reset to a kind of shock therapy. You know the line, never let a crisis go to waste, that was Rahm Emanuel? Well, with the coronavirus, that idea went global. And since last spring, powerful people began to use this pandemic as a way to try to force radical social and economic change across the continents. Never let a crisis go to waste. That quote initially comes from Winston Churchill. Rahm Emanuel did indeed say it. And Milton Friedman said a version of it too. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. That was the core theory outlined in Naomi Klein's famous book, The Shock Doctrine. The Shock Doctrine was about how leaders would use shocks to push through unpopular right-wing economic ideas. But now, 16 years later, it is really the right that is harping on about this idea. They say that centrist liberals are doing a kind of shock doctrine.
3: The idea that a select group of people with their own vision can implement a plan towards uh, everyday people like me and yourself, and they think they hold all the cards to the public on what they believe is beneficial for us, that's wrong.
2: This Rebel News correspondent has a sort of point. These global financial institutions do indeed want to subvert democracy. So there are many nuanced scholarly and journalistic critiques of the WEF and of the Great Reset. Like Ivan Wecky in Open Democracy, he looks at how the Great Reset smuggles in privatization and hardens intellectual property regimes. But like Naomi Klein writes in The Intercept, these legitimate issues get lost when they're thrown into a kind of conspiracy smoothie. Quote, This actually makes it harder to hold the Davos set accountable for any of this since legitimate critiques have now been blended together with truly dangerous anti-vaccination fantasies and outright coronavirus denialism.
3: This organization pushes fear and tragedies to further its own agenda. We know now uh, that um, the next crisis is already waiting for us around the corner. One that will dictate what you own, what you eat, what you think, under the guise of a sustainable future.
2: Rebels' change, documentary series the on the WEF on. Web is an incoherent hodgepodge of clips about shadowy elites. You've got organizations like the Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome, and many others Rebel says that these people want us to live in pods, eat bugs, and give up everything we own. So Rebel has committed to covering the WEF doggedly, And they claim that this is their most ambitious reporting project
5: yet. Rebel News is going into the heart of Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum, and you are invited to come along with us.
0: In fact, we need you.
2: They actually went to Davos during the last meeting in January, and while they were there, they did some muckraking journalism. Like asking the climate activist Greta Thunberg some very important questions.
3: Greta, it's getting quite cold in Davos. When can I expect some global warming?
2: <laughs> Greta, would you say you're a child actor? Are you a child actor or an expert? How would you For some reason, Rebel seems proud of this bizarre video, which is definitely worth checking out. If you watch it, you'll see seven journalists surrounding this teenager and following her as she's just trying to get by. It is borderline harassment. And for 19 minutes, they pepper her with the stupidest questions. You're joining the
6: establishment, not fighting them anymore. <laughs> You're not one of them. W- one of who? What, the people on the private jets and the helicopters flying in here to tell us how to live our lives?
1: Yes, because
7: I have many private jets of my own, yes.
2: But it is interesting that they're even there. In fact, it is the right-wing media who has just been the most dogged on the WEF. By my rough count, The Rebel alone has about 150 articles about the left. Where is the left media? Democracy now isn't there doing dogged journalism, but Rebel is, in their own way.
3: What would you like to do to make the world look completely different? That's a fair question, surely?
1: First, I would like to eat lunch, maybe.
3: (laughs) Are you going to be eating bugs to save the planet for this
2: lunch? I'll see. Today on Darts and Letters, we look at the shifting politics surrounding our globalist overlords. The public discourse about global financial institutions has become very right-wing. But it hasn't always been that way. I'll speak with journalist, activist, and academic Raj Patel, who will transport us back to the heyday of the 90s global justice movement.
1: Even in the mid to late 90s, the fascists were there. It was pretty clear to everyone that the fascists were kind of into the idea of gumming up the flows of global capital, because for them, global capital meant the Jews.
2: Then, we go to Davos and speak to leftist organizers inside and outside the World Economic Forum. The WEF is actually inviting leftists in. People like Nicola Siegrist, president of the Young Socialists of Switzerland.
4: It's difficult to put it in a black and white. I wouldn't say you are absolutely a class trait when you're entering the walls of Davos, as the image of the WEF has changed.
2: Today's WEF is warm and fuzzy. The watchwords there are stakeholder capitalism, sustainable development, and corporate social responsibility. Filmmaker and academic Joel Bakken asks whether the modern corporation has successfully co-opted our critiques.
6: When you have the largest oil and gas companies in the world saying, We care as much as you do in the streets about climate change, and we have the power to do something about it, and we are doing something about it. That is a problem for the critics, because they have incredible ideological firepower. All that and more after the break.
2: Dear New Books Network listener, as you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. So if you're hearing us for the first time, consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this episode, you will surely like other episodes we produced. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe there to never miss an episode. Okay, back to the show. And to begin, why don't we start with a different three-letter acronym named Globalist Financial Cabal. I'm not talking about the WEF, I am talking about the WTO.
0: As the 20th century ended, the world economy was booming. Yet national tariffs and local protections were often barriers to the rapid growth of commerce.
2: You're hearing a clip from a short PBS documentary produced in 2009 called The Whole World Was Watching.
0: Advocates of free trade and open markets hope to negotiate less restrictive rules through an entity called the World Trade Organization. Established in 1995, the WTO was little known outside business circles when President Clinton announced that its 1999 meeting would be held in the United States.
2: That meeting would be held in Seattle. Yes, we are talking about what came to be known as the Battle in Seattle. Technically, it was the WTO Ministerial Conference of 1999. The ministers were there to negotiate a new trade deal. So I wanted to talk to somebody who had been on the inside of the WTO.
1: I, uh, as you can hear from my voice, can pull off quite a posh accent when I need to. And I used that to get in uh, an internship at the World Trade Organization because I was actually quite curious about how the sausage was made.
2: This is Raj Patel. You know him as the activist, journalist, and academic who's been called the rock star of social justice writing. He's especially well-known for his critical reporting on the global food system. But back when he was a student, he was rubbing shoulders with the global financial establishment.
1: I was uh, engaged in acts of calculated betrayal, and I managed to get an internship in the bit of the World Trade Organization that, that worked on economics and economic policy. And at the time, I was doing my PhD, and one of my minors was development economics. So they let me in. And I was curious about what they were up to. And that they set me onto a project that was about the environmental impacts of trade.
2: The young Patel was looking at the relationship between economic development and pollution. There's a theory that pollution follows a kind of inverted U-shape as countries develop economically. Low at first, then it goes up, but eventually it goes back down. That was the theory, at least— Raj Patel was looking at whether or not it would actually happen.
1: I had a a very slight sense that evidence mattered within the World Trade Organization, but I, I certainly wasn't hoping to win friends or influence people. I was viewing my internship there as, you know, an uncontrolled experiment in which I was, you know, interested to see whether data would matter. And it turns out that it didn't.
2: Turns out that rich countries just end up outsourcing their pollution. So economic development doesn't necessarily mean less pollution. So said Patel in his report. That report didn't go anywhere, and Patel didn't stick around with the WTO. He joined the global justice movement, a movement that was planning big things for the meeting in Seattle.
0: As soon as we heard 11 months in advance that they had chosen
2: Seattle, we'd just start right away to organize and set up a steering committee for for
6: organizing groups here in Seattle and... Internet.
2: These activists had all sorts of gripes about how the WTO would erode environmental and labor protections. And they also said that the institution was just fundamentally undemocratic.
3: I think the secrecy of the WTO meetings was really something that resonated with people, how people could go in a room and make decisions that had such a huge impact on our lives without the people in this country being able to have any voice in that process at all. I think all of our union members here really got that. We had uh, planes, trains, automobiles, buses coming from Canada and across the U.S.
2: The global justice movement back then was many things and many different kinds of people. This was a coalition of unions, students, teachers, farmers, indigenous activists, and more. These were people from the global north and people from the global south. What they were doing had a much more anarchist vibe than some of the organizing that we have today. Mutual aid, direct action, and autonomous movements building international coalitions. That was the kind of politics that converged in Seattle.
1: From my perspective, I played host and a a very minor role to the excellent work of the organizers in Seattle and particularly the People's Global Action. Many of my comrades organized a caravan across the United States in the months leading up to the World Trade Organization summit. I was a way station in Ithaca, New York, on the journey of this caravan of I don't know a couple of dozen people who were trying to raise awareness in the United States in 1999 about what was coming down the pike. Because you know then as now, most Americans have no idea what the World Trade Organization is. But it was kind of important back then to teach people what that was about. And so the nonviolent sort of journey of this caravan was essentially as a a, a sort of outdoor school. I was certainly a part of that. But I was also uh, keen to be part of the the independent media uh, process that was developing in Seattle.
2: At the time, Patel was still a PhD student at Cornell. And he had this kind of insider-outsider persona. He was out on the streets as an organizer and indie student journalist. He wrote these interesting dispatches, which you can find on the environmental news website grist.com. But he was also inside in the conference halls. He was acting as a member of the Zimbabwean delegation. Because
1: I was part of Ceatini, and Ceatini was uh, an organization that was anti-imperial, and, you know who else was anti-imperial but Robert Mugabe back in the day. So Mugabe uh, and some of the civil servants within the Zimbabwean government arranged for us to get credentialed as part of the Zimbabwean Civil Society uh, group. Uh, we were, you know, a very, very small fry. But that's how I managed to get into the event in Seattle as a member of the, the you know, of the proceedings, but then also to run outside and write up what I was seeing.
2: Fascinating, and I loved... Um... Uh, your dispatches. And one of the things that struck me in some of your, your dispatches is the matter in which nations in the developing world, African nations are constantly marginalized in kind of like Ridiculous and increasingly funny ways, where it's like no one bothered to set up the microphone, or there's some, you know, technological issue that uh, no one comes around to fix, or key meetings are on the other side of town. I mean, what can you can you give us? Give me a little sense of like what it was like for the Zimbabwean delegation and what some of your colleagues uh, there were were saying and doing.
1: I think the, the sort of key to understanding. The eventual outcome at Seattle is to understand that the ministers who turn up to these events are used to being treated like incredibly important people. They cut through traffic uh, at the drop of a hat. Their children are sent to the best possible schools everyone around them fawns upon them everywhere. And so for them to, to rock up at the, the convention center in Seattle and then to be, you know, assembled around a room and then, yes, the translation doesn't work and the translators aren't there. And then all of a sudden they're told they have to leave because Motorola needs the room. That kind of shit doesn't fly uh, with these very, you know, I mean, th- this is the sort of highest of the haute bourgeoisie in you know, whichever sub-Saharan African country you're thinking of. So a, a lot of the, the sort of Negotiating tactics uh, when it's done bilaterally is you know you get invited to the US ambassador's residence or you know the USA AID slash CIA outpost and usually they're, they're the same place. The yeah, and you get told look we're very interested in a trading relationship around this and we see that you're. Your son is just about to go to university. Wouldn't it be nice if he got into Brown uh, or some other kind of university where it wouldn't attract too much attention that they were there because they're obviously not that bright, so Brown's probably the right place. Um, and the, the, these kinds of negotiating tactic work just fine because all of a sudden you know, this very senior civil servant feels, or you know, this, this government minister, feels like they're being attended to. Uh, and again, the dynamic in Seattle was consistently to undercut any feeling that these ministers might have had, that they were important.
2: Interesting. So what were you expecting there? What were you thinking might happen at this meeting?
1: What we were expecting was that the US would pull some shit, uh, that that there would be, uh, you know, right at the last minute, some emergency new proposal that was above and beyond the horrors that had already been laid out. And perhaps it would be something that governed all investment transfers uh, and deregulated the global banking system. I mean, who knows what uh, was in the wet dreams of the US negotiators. But there's always the the hope that you might be able to regenerate a moment of pan-Africanist solidarity. Uh, And that was certainly our MO. And in part, that pan-Africanism kind of showed up Uh, and the the protests on the street certainly mattered. You could sort of hear them, and you could definitely see them, and they were on every screen that was playing CNN within the, the conference building, and I think that kind of mattered too. The vibe is like a carnival. That has a lot to do with the forces of the state that are there and the way that different levels of the state respond, because initially it's just Seattle PD, and... You know, as police go, and I I, I uh, don't particularly want to uh, find myself in a position of being quoted as saying the police were groovy, but the Seattle police are groovier than some of the, the forces that then turned up later on.
0: The power of the
6: people we are not in danger. We have no intention of making a move on you. We're all committed to nonviolence here, so we Good. just want to make sure so we I demonstrate that to you. So we. We'll... I haven't
8: hurt
2: anybody
0: in 30 years. I don't plan to start now.
2: This is a clip from an indie documentary called "This Is What Democracy Looks Like." Just like Patel says, the relationship between the cops and the protesters is mostly amicable, at least at the beginning.
1: The Seattle PD were essentially preserving First Amendment rights to allow people to protest, in part because that was the line that had come down from Clinton. Clinton had had read the writing on the wall. I mean, he's, he's always a, a good politician. He understood that while he was going to succeed in Seattle, he didn't want to, to make that success come with the veneer of totalitarianism that it ultimately assumed what he wanted was uh, to win, but also to have some sort of a street party outside where people were gently putting daisies into stun guns, but nothing more violent than that, if you please. And so for the first couple of days, that's what happened, you know, we managed to engage in lockdowns, I was able to sort of skip daintily from one side of the, uh, the protest line to the other with nary a, a glance cast. Part of the strategy here w- was by blocking off the streets, you-, you stop the various delegates coming in in their SUVs and force people to use the streets. And for some, that was a security risk that the U.S. didn't particularly feel comfortable with or they didn't particularly feel comfortable with.
0: A little bit of information. We are successfully blocking out delegates. Yeah! Is-
8: <laughs> we are making available for you to leave now. There are protesters at the end of 6th Avenue on each end of our block. So you'd be let out right in the middle of the protest. I recommend you stay here if you can. Yes,
1: yes. I remember I, I, I was inside the building and the opening plenary was very, very sparsely filled, it became clear that, that folk weren't going to be able to get in as quickly as they had wanted and without some friction.
0: The opening session is
1: still postponed. I have not, I called and asked for an immediate update. They said to relax, put your feet up, go to your hotel room, relax, have lunch,
8: and tell the situation is safer out there.
6: I
2: The WTO goes into attack mode. They basically call the protesters nativists. Here's a quote from a speech by Mike Moore. Mike was the then director general of the WTO. Quote, For some, the attacks on economic openness are part of a broader assault on internationalism, on foreigners, immigration, a more pluralistic and integrated world. Anti-globalization becomes the latest chapter in the age-old call to separatism, tribalism, and racism, the them versus us view of the world. But when I was a young man, the word internationalism was a noble word.
1: I remember hearing this at the time uh, and uh, along with everyone else on the street sneering at it because it was obviously bullshit. It was entirely self-serving. Michael Moore can feel things slipping away from him in this moment. And so his response is to take refuge in uh, you know, a sort of 19th century liberalism that understands trade as the glue that binds the world together. And if you look at the, the history of 19th century advocates for, for trade, this is a story that they tell that actually, yes, you know, if if only we exchange with one another, we can become friends and then we can come to overcome our petty little small minded politics and instead imagine a world filled with commerce and exchange and joy and love. Now, the the data suggests that actually trading relationships don't generate this kind of affection at all. And uh, the the evidence since Seattle in 99 uh, has borne that out. But the fiction was really quite important to you know this moment of globalizing American empire. That in fact the empire was one in which you know free exchange would be encouraged, and so the lowering of trade barriers was also it was synonymous with the lowering of barriers of prejudice. And of course, what we were doing on the streets, we had trade unions from around the world, including China, where you had workers standing up for the end of these discussions, because what was being written was not a charter of international solidarity, but a charter of international exploitation that would pit worker against worker. And that's, you know, if you wanted international solidarity and an end to chauvinism, you, you could find it much more readily on the streets, where you would find workers talking about how it is that that, uh, a particular corporation had hopped from one place to another to another to another in order to secure for itself the, the lowest possible environmental and worker regulations.
2: In Patel's dispatches, he does concede that there were some nativist attitudes trying to capitalize on the global justice movement, but these people were not part of the movement. He writes, quote, More is right in some ways... There are some groups that are fiercely isolationist and chauvinist. Some European right-wing groups, for instance, try to spin the meeting of the June 18th, 1999 protests against capitalism into being anti-Semitic. For them, resistance to globalization is an act of hatred. But these right-wing groups are very much in the minority. Even in
1: Geneva in the mid to late 90s, the you know the, the fascists were there and they were interested in some of the anti-globalization stuff that the people's global action were doing but it was pretty clear to everyone that the fascists were kind of into the idea of uh gumming up the flows of global capital because for them global capital meant the jews and the idea of a, a certain kind of Autonomy in the global economy was really a racial supremacy uh, line, right, where, where it's just jobs for the whites that would have gone down very well with European fascists. Now th- th- that's always been a line, and the way that the People's Global Action, any progressive movement, has fought it is by saying, "No, that's you know that's fucked up. What we stand for is the international solidarity of workers together," and uh, couching the resistance to these trade treaties not as a turn towards blood and soil, but instead a recognition that the way we we prevent capitalism from exploiting workers further is for workers to stand together.
2: Whatever restraint the Seattle PD might have had certainly didn't last. Over the next few days, the police would become increasingly brutal.
1: The tenor of things started to change when it became clear that negotiations weren't going very fast and that there may have been infiltrators in the Black Bloc who started smashing things up that provided something of an alibi for state police and other law enforcement agencies to come in and start getting pretty heavy-handed. And at that point, the weather also turned and it started getting just a lot worse, a a lot wetter as morning on
0: November 30th came with a cold drizzle. Large groups of demonstrators converged on Seattle's convention center, where the WTO was meeting.
2: Tom, this would be a good time to put on your mask and goggles. The, whole world is the, whole world is the events that follow are disturbing and difficult to watch. Peaceful protesters sit down and brace themselves while cops calmly walk by and pepper spray them one after the other. If you watch these documentaries you'll also see tear gas, stun grenades, and beatings. I'm curious about what people were saying on the inside about the protests on the outside.
1: I remember uh, the, the delegates being kind of impressed with the protesters and surprised that no one had been killed yet because in in some of the countries whose delegates were there, this is the sort of thing that would have met with, with hails of gunfire on day one. And uh, you know, America seems to be standing by its principles of free speech. That starts to melt away with chuckles of familiarity as by day three and day four, the uh, rubber bullets and the uh, and the tear gas start to be deployed uh, with a much more familiar ferocity uh, to people from the global center.
2: If the cops' plan here was to try and discourage the protesters, it just wasn't working. It was doing the exact opposite. It emboldened them, and it brought them together. The thing you have to understand about the people here in Seattle, really, it's a kind of awkward marriage between two types of activists. First, you had the more anarchist types. They were there to do direct action. Then you had the more establishment types, like the unions that were there to do the typical choreographed marches. These are two very different types of people that don't exactly see eye to eye on all the issues. But by the end of all this, they had intense solidarity. This is partly because the Teamsters boss was just so affected by what he saw in Seattle.
0: morning I stayed out there in the rain and I watched. I watched youngsters who were peacefully demonstrating, who weren't doing a damn thing to hurt anybody, who went down the street and I watched them jackbooted, helmeted, club holding. You were greeted shabbily. If this was my city, I would apologize to you for that happening in this city. It's... This is where you belong, right here with the labor movement. So I'd like to introduce to you David Taylor from Direct Action Network, the people who helped with us shut down the WTO in the streets of Seattle. Well, I'd like to say that all of us from Direct Action Network that are still out of jail came down today to support you guys. are When labor and students and environmentalists and human rights activists stand together, we can and did shut down the WTO.
2: The protesters are emboldened, but the mayor of Seattle declares a state of emergency. This includes a curfew and a no protest zone. Despite that, the protesters keep at it. The Seattle PD responds with mass arrests, and over 150 people are thrown into jail. Some of the delegates inside from the developing world end up being emboldened by the protests that they see on the outside. Plus, they become increasingly frustrated by the mistreatment that they get from richer countries. So they push harder and harder in the negotiations. And eventually, the talks just fall apart. In the end, they would be no deal. So the deal breaks down at the end of the day. And and I have seen in some of the coverage and some of the documentaries either an implicit or explicit suggestion that they were also emboldened by the activism on the outside. Does that strike you as true at all? like, Did the protest really have anything to do with the deal falling down? I think they did. I
1: don't think that merely being slighted would have been sufficient. I think it was necessary for these sort of uh, bourgeois negotiators to feel like they needed an alternative. But the process made the alternative clear, that they could just say no. And and I think you know, that there's you needed both, uh, you know, but both of these things were necessary, and together they were sufficient. And that I think that, that that's a much more helpful understanding of the process because it it invokes not just uh, the sort of class positions of the people who are actually involved in a position to say no, but also the recognition that they might have seen themselves on the street much more than they would have otherwise. You know, in in other World Trade Organization protests, even you know, in the protests that, that subsequently followed, there wasn't the same kind of recognition or uh, connection than there was in Seattle. I think that, that was pretty important. Um, you know, a, a pattern for World Trade Organization ministerials ever since has been to put vast amounts of distance between anyone who's involved in it and anyone who might be protesting it. So that, that sure, you can have your protests, but you will never trouble the flow of, delegates and capital in the way that that we were able to in in downtown Seattle.
2: What impact did this whole experience here in Seattle have on you going forward? And things feel different today in some way. Maybe they're not, but the global justice movement doesn't seem like it's on the forefront of the sort of leftist imaginary. Um, Maybe you can contend that if I'm wrong. But is there something from that time that we're missing that we should bring back?
1: These protests were transformative for me because I got to see folk not just saying no to something, uh, but proposing lots of alternatives. You know, one of the slogans at the time was one, no, many yeses. Uh, And it was important to be able to see that moment of uh, recognition, particularly coming from movements like La Via Campesina, the International Peasant Movement, which means the peasant way, uh, which now has over 200 million members around the world. Uh, you, You have Uh, organizations that are seeing one another and presenting alternatives that are, you know, that still matter for me. And I still, you know, find ideas around food sovereignty and agroecology tremendously important in thinking about what matters now. Um, uh, Now, when when you say that the global justice movement seems to have faded from view, I I suspect that that's the view from North America. Um, In the global south, Uh, you know, the South-South connections seem to be alive and well. Um, So I I certainly think that what's being lost in North America is an internationalism. I think that that's that's incredibly disturbing uh, and something that needs to be, you know, that I certainly do my best to um, gum up in, uh, you know, leftist conversations that I have, that that in fact, you know, the international question when it appears at all, has been transmuted into a migration question, and that's a right-wing trope. Uh, uh, you know, the, the question of reparations uh, of what the global north might owe the global south um, has either been reduced to a technical uh, question uh, or reduced into the sort of thing where precisely it's a one-way process where the global north must give to the global south, uh, as if the global south has nothing to teach the global north. And Back in 1999, no one had that idea. Um, A lot of the the best organizing was coming from the Global South. uh, And that humility, I think, has been lost um, so that, uh, you know, this becomes the sort of zone of uh, of sort of uh, beard-stroking white men thinking about the, the problems of internationalism. And in fact, it's been there all along.
2: Was Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, and many other popular books. You can find that and more at rajpatel.org. Let's take it back to the present and look at that other three letter acronym organization, the WEF. There are indeed still leftist organizations protesting the World Economic Forum, just as they protested the World Trade Organization. But the politics around the WEF are very different. Darts and Letters producer Mark Apollonio went looking for some Swiss activists who mobilize in and around the WEF, but he found them in the mountains around Davos.
5: We are in a forest, we, you see the mountains, There is a lot of snow, it's icy, it's a bit dangerous. This man communing with the trees and the mountain goats in the Swiss Alps
8: is Claudio Bernard. He's describing the protest hike he helped organize back in January of this year. The hike was about getting in proximity to some of the world's richest people. Claudio and about 200 other protesters were making their way to the World Economic Forum, held as it is every year in the small mountain town of Davos, Switzerland.
7: It's a hike that is far away from the visibility of the public. It's basically on a mountain hike road. So it's not something that really disrupts the event in any ways.
8: That's Agnes Jesler, a campaigner for Greenpeace Switzerland. She says the protesters would delight in disrupting the event if they could. But she says there isn't much choice.
7: Because in Switzerland, um, protests need a license to be allowed to happen, otherwise they're illegal protests and then the people that are attending can be criminalized, it's very difficult to organize a protest that is also inclusive and doesn't risk participants legally. So we can see that the military police has really been using their power to restrict basically to restrict the protest from enfolding the power that it could have.
8: The two-day hike is all that's on offer, the only option given to would-be marchers by Swiss authorities. The hike starts in Kublis, a town north of Davos. They overnight in a spot called Klosters. On the second day, as they approach Davos, they're obliged to board a train, which then bypasses the website site altogether, dropping them off at a designated protest zone on the other side there's only one road through Davos, making it pretty difficult for protesters to evade the police. Claudio, he's a spokesperson for Strike Wef, a group that's been around since 2019. He says in the early 2000s, there were a few years when the protests were significantly more disruptive, leading to a crackdown.
5: The thing is, the officials reacted with extremely repression. Um, For example, one thing I heard was like, they bound people to some garage in the winter where in to minus temperatures uh, people but when people came with the train they stopped the train midway to the to the walls and just policemen came through the train and picked everybody that looks like they could protest and just just took them out the globalization anti-globalization protests then were quite crushed with this repression, but also it forced the WEF to change, or like to change its image. The crackdown, it was bad
8: PR for the WEF. Also, the growing climate anxiety of the early 2000s was bad for the WEF's brand too. So the World Economic Forum pivoted, giving itself a green, socially responsible makeover.
5: Then they had to invite more NGOs because like, they don't want to see any more as, that sh- as a, as a dead bad organization that they, in the end, are. Uh, so they just g- gave them a good lifting with having NGOs there. Which all means that in and around the WEF today, you hear less
8: of this kind of thing. And a lot more of this kind of thing. This is duet Noah and Gil performing a song about the plight of the corals in the Red Sea at this year's meeting. And here's WEF head Klaus Schwab on the kinds of environmental and social concerns he wants the world's billionaires to tackle.
5: Our generation has reached a turning point. Confronted by truly existential problems. Climate change, exploitation of nature, nuclear...
8: With the WEF's turn to cuddly environmentalism, a question comes up. Does it actually represent some kind of meaningful progress? Or is it simply corporate woke washing, Just an effective cover for corporate greed? I asked Agnes about it, and she says it's complicated, when the WEF extended a speaking invitation to Greenpeace's former executive director, Jennifer Morgan, in 2020. She went.
7: Greenpeace holds that we don't have permanent friends nor foes. So we have criticized on the outside, but we've also been on the inside trying to speak truth to power, trying to get to talk to many campaign targets at at once because they're all present there some people at the World Economic Forum will firmly believe that they are proposing solutions that work. I think it would be naive to think that also these people in power are not worried to a certain degree about the state of the world. But I also think that makes it all the more important to not give in to these narratives and to instead demand greater democratization, demand greater participatory decision-making, And most of all, greater transparency. I think what is most troublesome to me, at least in the World Economic Forum, is that most of the meetings where actual decisions are being taken are behind the doors meetings. It's on the side of the event where powerful people get together and discuss new strategies. This is how the whole idea of TTIP, for example, came about. How a lot of the global free trade agreements came into being was because people had a chance to meet at Davos
4: it's not like they are not responding at all. They are just responding on the wrong level. But the, a response on the wrong level is more difficult to attack than no response at all. That's Nicolas Siegrist,
8: president of the Young Socialists of Switzerland and an elected
4: politician in the canton of Zurich. Klaus Schwab is an interesting person because even though he totally supports the system, totally supports capitalist structures, is friend with uh, a lot of evil state heads, friend with a lot of economic superpowers, he realized that in order for the capitalist system to survive, it needs to adapt to some form of crisis that are showing in the 21st century. One of the crises is certainly the climate crisis. So Klaus Schwab and his friends, they put forward the climate crisis as a key issue also for a global economy. Um, second would be inequalities, uh, third would maybe be um, questions of, of gender, questions of diversity, um, racial matters that should be discussed also from a liberal or right-wing perspective. And I think it's interesting that, that that's more or less one of his strengths. So he, he can say, of course these issues matter, um, here's our solutions, which are obviously not the solutions that they left. Would uh, support, which probably makes it uh, more difficult to to fight against the structures that are uh, showing at WEF every year. So inviting people like Greta Thunberg or other critiquing voices has been almost in the center of reforming the World Economic Forum during the past 10-20 years. And yes, This is also showing with people like me. I have been invited to the World Economic Forum last year. (laughs) Um, I wasn't invited to give a speech of some sort, but to to participate in in the activities. In the end, it was uh, easy for me to decide that I'll be staying on the protest outside of the walls of uh, the World Economic Forum. But at the same time, if you were given the opportunity to speak with the publicity of several million people, it's difficult to say no. That's, that's clear, I'd I say I'd say the, the speech of Greta Thunberg.
1: I am here to say our house is on fire. According to the IPCC, we are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes.
4: That has had an, an enormous impact on the climate movement all around the world, which, like in consequence, I'd say, has also had an impact on the left, movement uh, in almost every country so it's difficult to like put it in a black and white scenario as leftist activists at least in switzerland i wouldn't say you're absolutely a class trait when you're entering the walls of, of davos and entering the walls of the world economic forum as the image of the of the WEF has changed over the past 20 years and there's a lot of interesting people also within those walls. The question then is who, who is deciding? Who is deciding at the like, concrete discussions that are being done? And there it's clear it's, it's world leaders, leaders and mainly it's capital deciding. And that certainly hasn't changed. Something else that
8: hasn't changed is the transportation choices of the people who attend. Agnes says Greenpeace has been tracking that closely.
7: What we've done around this year's WEF is we've published a report on private jet aviation around the World Economic Forum. Again, to discredit the people that are speaking there that are putting a lot of effort into showing themselves as very progressive, as moving the green agenda forward, and doing all they can. And of course, it's a it's only a small. Peace in the whole problematic system of the World Economic Forum, but the fact that so many of the participants fly there using private jets, sometimes for sh- distances as short as 21 kilometers, okay. just shows the absurdity <laughs> of, the, of the whole event. And it's something that's been taken up by media around the world. It's a story that the media very much likes to tell, and that is very accessible for people as well who have maybe not heard so much or thought so much about whether the World Economic Forum is problematic or not. And it has allowed us to build on a private jet campaign further and demanding um, a ban on private jets, which we now see. There was a questionnaire in Switzerland recently and a ban for private jets is actually supported by 70% of the public, which we didn't Uh, know about before.
8: (laughs) The idea being a, a law in Switzerland that says no one can use private jets?
7: We hope to get it there. It's, um, there is some politicians now who, who are uh, demanding attacks on private jets. Um, for us, that won't suffice. It's the most unequal form of transport that exists, but we can see a dynamism in the discussion.
8: If Switzerland bans private jets, following Greenpeace's report, it would be a win for the potential power of symbolic actions. It's that same potential, Agnes says, that motivates her to join the protest march through the Alps. Though there is one stage of the hike, as it nears Davos, where the effect of the protest is a little more concrete.
7: This hiking route, after all, still crosses the main access access route to Davos at one point. This is the only road in and out of the valley. And so all of the limousine services that drive attendees two Davos need to pass through this road and the protesters were creative enough to cross this road in a very, very slow way. Some of them turned into snails, some of them turned into other funny creatures, some of them started building snowmen and snow barricades on that road. So given that the space is so limited for civic action there was an ingenuity and a playfulness in how the road could still be blocked for over an hour in the end and cause a traffic jam that went all the way down to the highway exit which is quite far away so it was blocking onto the highway
6: and you said there was a rave
7: there was a rave too yes <laughs> um there was some protesters that brought out uh the i mean there's a music wagon this at some point returned to the street, and people were dancing joyfully. They were raving on the blocked road um, to keep it blocked a bit longer.
2: That was Claudio Bernard of Strike Wef, Nicolas Segrist of the Young Socialists of Switzerland, and Agnes Jesler of Greenpeace. That segment was by Darts and Letters producer Mark Apollonio.
0: is a corporation it is under the law
6: a legal person These are a special kind of person who have no moral conscience designed and by law to be concerned only for their stockholders
0: I just can't be personally responsible maybe you' better incorporate
6: there are companies that make our
0: lives better and that's a good thing the problem comes in the profit motivation Liz Quaber and Jack
2: you may watch this documentary from the early 2000s it's called the corporation. The corporation was quite influential amongst my particular generation of leftists. I was a teenager when it came out, and I still remember its very clever conceit. If corporations are people, what kind of
6: people are they? That's the question Joel Bakan asked in the movie. When I was learning about the corporation in law school, it really struck me that the corporation is programmed with a particular legal principle. And that legal principle is that it always has to prioritize and act for the benefit of its owners. This is Joel Bakken, co-writer of
2: the documentary The Corporation, and author of a book by the same name.
6: The managers and directors of the corporation have what's called a fiduciary obligation to the owners. What that means in sort of common speak is that they always have to act in the self-interest of the corporation. So here we have an institution that is legally programmed always and only to act in its own self-interest. You then add a second principle of corporate law to that, uh, which is that corporations are recognized by the law as artificial persons. So they're actually given personhood in order to be able to hold rights and obligations at law. So here we have a person that's imbued with the personality that it always has to act in its own self-interest, That When you put those two things together, that is a psychopathic person. And so the basic conceit of the first book and film was we have created this artificial person in the image of a human psychopath.
2: Backen developed a follow-up movie and book, this one focusing extensively on the WEF and this new idea of stakeholder capitalism. The follow-up is called The New Corporation, an unfortunately
6: necessary sequel. I actually remember the very moment when I thought it was necessary to make it, and it was at a 10-year anniversary celebration of the release of the first film so we're like we're talking about 2013 you know we were watching the film we were we had sort of drinks and canapes and it was like patting ourselves on the back isn't this great we made this film it had this big impact and here we are 10 years later people still talk about it and i was watching the film and about halfway through after seeing sort of the the first half and the litany of problems and everything else corporations creating, it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks that things had only gotten worse, they certainly hadn't gotten better. And so by any measure of the impact of a film, this film was a failure. I I mean, that all of the things that it criticized had not only continued, but gotten worse. And they they kind of changed in qualitative ways. It wasn't just that inequality was worse, that unions were more busted, that climate change was worse. Corporations had become quantitatively much more powerful and much larger in terms of their authority over our lives that changed things qualitatively. And in terms of their control of politics and everything else, then this idea that corporations were saying in 2013, we're the good guys now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to solve the world's problems. We're no longer the problem. We're the solution. And it was this sort of combination of things that I said, this is insane. A new film has to be made. This is a world that is completely different than the late 90s, early 2000s world that we were looking at. And so this uh, I have to sort of get out there again and investigate this anew.
2: And so you go through that diagnosis once more. Actually, you
6: add one more. Mm -hmm. What is it that you add? Yeah, well, so I mean, it was it was one of those really wonderful moments in filmmaking or in academic work where the thing that you need just shows up. And so I'm thinking that one of the central ideas in this film as opposed to the other is the corporation yes is a psychopath for all the reasons we've told you and none of that has changed but what has changed is corporation has convinced us that it's actually not a psychopath but it actually truly cares about us about the environment about society and so i thought well that's like the charm of the psychopath that's the the standard idea that psychopaths have this charm and they charm their victims into believing that they're going to help them and save them and all of that and it's the same thing and then i was sort of doing some research on the dsm which is the bible of psychiatry and it lists all the diagnostic criteria and i found that in 2011 they had added a new criterion for psychopathy which was this idea that psychopaths were charming and glib and and appealing and and that they were able to seduce their victims into seeing them as as good people and i thought eureka you know <laughs> there it is so yeah that that became the kind of piece in the new film mm-hmm. that was different than in the old one. I don't know if I'm just being like too glib
2: here, but I almost long for the the earlier form where like, the nature of the social relationship is made plain. I do, because <laughs> yeah. what,
6: what we've lost here, I mean, to put it in Marxist terms, is we've lost any class consciousness now. Mm-hmm. We've lost a consciousness that capital is inherently exploitative, destructive, That's what capital is. It's about extraction, Um, both literally extraction from the earth, extraction of labor, and turning that into capital, i.e. profit for those who invest in the extraction project. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, I'm not saying anything original or new there. That's just straight ahead economics and Marxism, whatever you want to call it. What happens with this new move towards to the good corporation is that conflict that's created between capital's need to exploit and the interest of those interests and people who are being exploited there no longer seems to be a contradiction there anymore so the very contradiction that capitalism creates is effectively obscured by the idea that now corporations care about those people so there's no longer any conflict and and so that kind of objective class conflict is completely made invisible.
2: Absolutely. And you get these really absurd, I mean, so it's pride month. So you see this most obviously, I think a couple, a couple days ago, I saw a tweet of uh, Lockheed Martin at a pride parade and someone was, was quipping about how this used to be a joke on the internet that one day this would happen. And, and sure enough, you have yeah. these bomb makers essentially uh, showing off their progressivism.
6: Yeah. And they can plausibly do it. It's the other thing that makes this different than earlier forms of social responsibility is that companies are actually doing things Mm -hmm. that are good for the environment and good for them. A great example of it is Honeywell, uh, which is, you know, a consumer products company. They make everything from refrigerator to nuclear weapons components and a major manufacturing company. And so they create a plant. In Kansas City, that is like super sustainable. And there's no question it's good for the environment. They use less uh, raw materials, they produce less waste, they take care of everything. And so that's great, you know, more power to them. The problem is inside that plant, they're making nuclear weapon components. So there's this bizarre contradiction between, you know, oh, we've got this great environmentally friendly thing and what are we using it for? We're using it to make nuclear weapons components. And, like, it's just hard to even begin to know
2: (laughs) what to do with that. One of the things that I'm struck by in seeing the very progressive branding of a place like the World Economic Forum, does it at all, I don't want to say co-opt, but maybe blunt, the left critique of the corporation?
6: Yeah. I mean, I think in a much larger way, the very strategic and deliberate movement of corporate capital to the side of the angels, whether it's through the WEF or or the various sort of advertising and nice YouTubes they do and everything else, I think they've co-opted our critique. And I think that's always really dangerous. I mean, you can... You can look throughout history, you know, the anarchists were worried the socialists had co-opted their critique. I mean, the co-optation of critique is always a problem. And so when you have the largest oil and gas companies in the world saying, we care as much as you do in the streets about climate change, and we have the power to do something about it, and we are doing something about it. That is a problem for the critics because they have incredible ideological firepower. They have the material resources to be able to just pummel us with their message in a way that I or Naomi Klein or you or, you know, I mean, not to be insulting or anything, but this podcast doesn't have the same firepower as Unilever. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's (laughs) just, you know, so... Their message continues to be and is very consistent. We've got this under control. Let us do it. You know, in my film, you'll see Lord John Brown, the person who was so early to embrace these ideas back in the 1990s, and you'll see him saying very clearly, I care as much as you do. I care about climate. That's all I care about. I just care about climate. But. We can't get to renewables anytime soon. So in the meantime, we need natural gas, which he happens to be part of a firm, a Russian firm, actually, that's developing natural gas. I mean, you know, so they take the issue and then they they re-communicate it in ways consistent with their fundamental purpose in the world, which is to make create capital for their investors
2: in your movie, you capture some interesting scenes at the World Economic Forum itself. And I'm curious a little bit about what the, um, what the vibe is like, basically. And one of the questions I had was, do they buy their own branding? Is it actually something they seem to sort of earnestly believe that they're doing good? Or when you're in a place like that, does, does the veil kind of ever drop?
6: There are people there. I mean, like Joseph Stiglitz and and a whole bunch of other people around him who are influential and who are very vehement in challenging wherever they can, getting right. press scrums, the sort of Kool-Aid that's being drunk there. And I talk about that a bit more in my book that the film is based on. There are many, many trade union leaders there. There are progressive journalists there. So there are sort of people who are not buying or drinking the kool-aid and then there are trumpites and and you know the coke brother types of people who certainly aren't buying that kool-aid so it's not univocal but having said that the overarching sort of culture and ethos of it is very much set by klaus schwab and by the corporate chiefs of major global companies in the world all of whom buy into this notion of whatever you want to call it stakeholder inclusive mm-hmm. social sustainable human capitalism but they all buy into this notion that capitalism is now not just about making money but it's it's about saving the world and you know as i say there are some challengers from the fringes but it's a very it's a very strong view in the wef and as i try to show in the film it's not Just the WEF is just a kind of representation and a concrete representation of what's a much broader sort of ideological movement among elite corporate capital. And do they actually buy into it? I'm not a good enough psychologist to know. Mm -hmm. But when I was talking to Klaus Schwab, when I was talking to Michael Porter from Harvard, who's one of the kind of driving intellects behind these ideas, When I was talking to Richard Edelman, who's one of the leading gurus, business gurus in the world, who talks about these ideas. When I was talking to the people who started a privatized school system in Kenya, the people from Bridge International who are in the film, they all appear to believe in what they're saying. I think they're sincere. I don't think they're hypocritical. And I think that makes them a hell of a lot more dangerous than if they were just <laughs> hypocritical. One of the critiques I've heard
2: made of the particular politics of the 90s and early 2000s, as it focused on sort of culture jamming and shaming the corporation, is that it was, it's like very aesthetic. Yeah, very Um astounding. And so there was a politics, I remember, you know, of a kind of, oh, you shop at Walmart, that's, that's like they're they're evil, you know? And then people would point out like, oh well, this that's a very classist way to approach your politics. And so so I think we've sort of walked away from that because it seems to seems to engender a kind of consumer capitalism or or a culture of ethical consumption, yes. for instance. And I'm wondering if, I mean, how do you feel how, about that critique? And is there something about that time where, You know, is there parts of it that we want to bring back, parts of it that we want to leave behind?
6: I mean, my first book and film were in part a response to corporate capitalism and in in part a response to critiques of corporate capitalism because my concern was that we were getting away in some of these more cultural or aesthetic critiques or individualized critiques. It's about where you shop. It's about that CEO's an asshole, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of critiques. I really felt it was important to inject a much more traditional kind of structural critique. And so that's where the book and film came from. It was it was not about, and, and particularly, we, we explicitly said, we're not saying these are bad guys. But what we're saying is they are part of the system. It's like, okay, I'm not a bad guy, but every year, I torture my students with final exams in law. I can give you all of the arguments as to why final exams don't work pedagogically, why they have adverse impacts on disabled people, on people of color, on blah, 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 poor people, people who didn't have the same kind of universities, right? On and on and on. I can give you a whole critique of it, but I have no choice. As a law professor... I can politically try to argue against them in committees and in faculty council, but I have to give those exams. Well, you can be a corporate leader in a tobacco company and be protesting against tobacco at night and voting for parties that are going to restrict tobacco during the day. And when you're in your job as a Mm -hmm. tobacco executive, you've got to do what you've (laughs) got to do. So it's not about the people and it certainly isn't about ethical consumption. It is about collective democratic action to either ameliorate or do away with the dominance of capitalist commodification as a way of living and organizing society. That's what it's about. Doesn't mean you have to do away with markets. Doesn't even mean you have to do away with corporations. But the idea that the production of capital is the telos of all of our social endeavors seems to me wrong. If we want to create a better society, then it seems to me our telos should be that. And if that's the case, then social would seem to be the telos, not capital, which leads to socialism. But what we've lost sight of in neoliberalism is means and ends. And you go back and read Adam Smith, I mean, markets were, A way of organizing production that was justified to the extent it served the good of society and regulated to the extent it served the good of society so we've totally lost sight of all that and um and partly that's inevitable when capital is the telos
2: yeah and i think partly um, it's us sort of accepting the uh the the myth of the sort of stakeholder capitalism what are your some sort of key sort of takeaways or suggestions on how we can puncture that delightful branding of uh, uh, places like WF, but corporations in general? What what do we do? Do we attack them more? How do we approach the question of stakeholder capitalism?
6: Yeah, I mean that's a, a big question, and it's a very difficult question, and I think that obviously critiquing you know revealing the limits revealing the hypocrisy all of that is important but i think equally important is showing that democracy can work that humanism can work that egalitarianism is essential that you you can't have a truly humanistic democratic polity while having an economy that is just completely Uh, fractured by division. So you need to have measures in place that ensure a certain degree of social equality in order to have social solidarity. That equality has to be not just across economic lines, but across intersecting race, gender, LGBTQT. You have to create that kind of society in order for political democracy to work we are in the middle of an experiment of showing how political democracy can't work when society is radically unequal and where people are left behind and hopeless and despairing that's where we are now and we're seeing democracy unwinding as a result of that so i think we need to have models of what democracy a true democracy can look like. And so, I mean, what we really need to do as people is discover or possibly rediscover a sense that one of our crucial roles is being a citizen. We never think about that. Maybe when we're crossing the border, we pull out our passport and say, I'm a citizen of whatever. Mm -hmm. But we think all the time about our roles as workers, as students, as, as parents, as lovers, as, you know, like we're constantly like consumers, like we're constantly thinking about this role, but we typically don't think what does it mean to be a citizen? And that seems to me to be something that's really important and right. to have a sense of what that means in terms of collective endeavor to creating a social world. That we want to live in, that we want those who we love to live in, and that we want those who are strangers to us to live in because we care about them too. That just seems obvious. If we're going to survive as a species, (laughs) we have to kind of discover that capability in ourselves. And if we don't, if we continue down this path of continuing disaggregation, atomism, politics, just being this kind of you know, strong man's repression of everybody we don't like and ruining the planet and trashing it and everything. I, you know, I just, I, I, it scares the hell out of me.
2: That was professor and filmmaker Joel Bakken. You can find his books and his movies at joelbakken.com. And that's it for this week's episode of darts and letters if you like what you heard consider supporting us on patreon you can find us at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters we are a production of Cited media and we are produced by jay coburn mark epilonio and ren bangert as always our theme song and outro was composed by mike barber our graphic designs are done by dakota coop and i'm your host and editor gordon katik This episode receives support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of an ongoing mini-series that we're producing that looks at the radical imagination. The scholarly leads are Professors Alex Kosnabisch at Mount St. Vincent University and Max Haven at Lakehead University. They are providing research support and consulting to this series. Thanks for listening. How does it sound? Brand new mic. How does it sound? Brand new mic. Is there much noise?